today. I want us to pick up from where we left off last week in our series from the Gospel of Mark titled Jesus, Son of God, Suffering Servant, and Savior of Sinners. We pick up today with Mark chapter 6, verse 53. You know, every place Jesus went, people wanted to get an audience with him. People wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to touch him. They wanted to experience what others did whenever they encountered him. In a unique way, Jesus was a man of the people. He was unlike anyone else the people had ever seen. He came from God. And yet, he was also a man from among the people. In many ways, people could, could identify with him, even though he was unique from everyone. Yet, in many ways, so many could identify. Jesus is truly the God-man, fully God fully human, at the same time, in one person. This is why he alone is uniquely qualified to be the savior of the world. Now here in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 53, we get a summary of what has been taking place, if you will, here to four. These verses 53 to 56 are a summary right here at the very end of Mark chapter 6. I want to read it from the NIV. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. That ends our passage, and that ends chapter 6 for us of the Gospel of Mark. So after a harrowing night <clears throat> for the disciples, they landed at Gennesaret. Hmm. Their experience on the water was beyond anything the disciples could ever have anticipated. They witnessed Jesus walk on water and it blew their minds. No one could do such a thing except God. That was the point. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is 
exactly who he claimed to be. Apparently, they had been blown off course while on Lake Galilee because it does not appear they ever docked at Bethsaida. Remember that Jesus had told them originally after the feeding of the 5,000, he had dismissed the disciples early to leave and he'd instructed them to head toward Bethsaida. But apparently they never got to Bethsaida, actually. Instead, after Jesus got into the boat with them on the lake, calming down the waters and the stormy weather in the process, they sailed back westward to Gennesaret, where they have just landed here, according to Mark chapter 6, verse 53. Now, one might read verse 53 and not think very much about it, except that, yes, Jesus had told them to go to Bethsaida. They never got to Bethsaida. Now here they are in Gennesaret. In other words, if you were to see this geographically, they start out traveling we're not sure of where they were with the feeding of the 5,000, but if, if, if our understanding is correct, they are traveling to Bethsaida in an easterly direction or northeasterly direction. They're blown off course. Jesus gets into the boat with them, quells the storm, and they wind up going back westward and docking at Gennesaret. The Lord then had originally instructed them to set sail for Bethsaida, but they would end up going with Jesus to Gennesaret. It seems that the Lord altered their itinerary or that the circuitous trip they took because of the weather conditions on Lake Galilee was all part of the Lord's plan in the first place. Remember, he told them to go toward Bethsaida. The original instructions given by Jesus, though, were not about the destination of Bethsaida, but all about the journey itself. Think about it. He told them to go to Bethsaida, or to head toward Bethsaida. They attempt to do so. They never get there. They need to be rescued by him in the middle of the journey, on the lake, in a storm, in rough weather, rough waters. And he, after calming everything down, redirects them to Gennesaret. Hmm. So, in my view here, the original instructions given by Jesus were not about the destination. They started in that direction, obeying what the Lord had told them to do. But for Jesus, it was not about them actually ever landing at Bethsaida, but all about the journey itself. Often in life, we focus on the destination. When the Lord focuses on both the journey 
and the destination. They were, as we now know, they were going to eventually wind up at Gennesaret, not at Bethsaida. So they were instructed to go toward Bethsaida. But they didn't know they wouldn't get there. Nor did they know that they would eventually wind up at Gennesaret. Often in life, we focus on the destination when the Lord focuses on both the journey and the destination. You know, we have that are we there yet mentality? You know what I mean? I want to get there. And I want to get there now. I want to get there yesterday. I want to get there in a hurry. We're supposed to be going from point A to point B, and I want to get to point B. Never mind what could be between points A and B. The journey between points A and B could be the whole point of the journey. But too often, we don't see it that way in today's mindset. It's about getting from point A to point B, and that's it. Often when we get in a car and decide that we're going to go somewhere, it's routine that we, well, we only pay enough attention to what's going on along the journey in order to be safe in getting there. The mind is focused on the destination. But that is not the way the Lord works. Hmm. Think about it prayerfully with me as we, as we plod along here. Consider what the disciples saw and experienced with Jesus while they were on the way to the destination all night. That's the story. Bethsaida is not the story. The story is the journey. All night on that journey, Toiling, what did they see? They witnessed Jesus' divine authority over the natural world. He walked on water and then quieted down the winds and waves that were threatening the disciples' lives while they were in the boat. In the boat. Verse 53 says, When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. The point being, they safely got to where Jesus wanted them to go in terms of the destination. And they learned a lot while on their difficult and sometimes frightening journey overnight. Often in life we start out thinking we are going in one direction when God has another purpose and plan beyond what we expect. The disciples had not expected what they experienced out there on the lake. But the Lord knew what he was going to do with them. 
back to us for the moment. So we tend to be better at the destination than the journey. And one of the reasons for that is because we live in such a fast-paced world that breeds impatience. I mean, we are accustomed to things, perhaps almost everything, on demand. And even more so in the technologically advanced era in which we live now than at any point in history. Technology has accomplished wonders for us in terms of human achievement. But it also has its drawbacks. It also has downsides. So for example, you know, all the technology in the world, at least up to this point, can't deal with certain things, certain illnesses and certain, you know, types of sickness and disease. And as a result, we, you know, we get sick, we get ill, something happens. We are forced to do what? Pause, stop, and put aside or put off whatever, whatever destinations we were headed to in order to deal with the realities of what we're going through in the moment on the journey of life. Sickness has a way of forcing us to have to focus on the journey. Because you got to stop and deal with what's happening to you. Just like they had to stop and deal with what was happening to them when they were out there in the middle of that lake and their lives hung in the balance in the middle of a bad storm and the winds and the waves swirling all around them, threatening their lives and threatening the boat they were in. You see, all of a sudden when the circumstances change, externally or internally, then we're forced to have to stop and deal with the journey we are in now. And hope we get to where we're supposed to be going in one piece. <laughs> By the way, I could imagine, the Bible says that they anchored, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. And I could imagine how they may have felt when they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there after having gone through such a horrific night on the water, on the Sea of Galilee, which we also call Lake Galilee as well. You know, it reminds me a little bit of an experience that I had many years ago when I took a flight to Texas many, many years ago uh, I took a flight to Texas from Louisville, Kentucky, and um, I remember that we flew to Memphis, and then we had to, I don't know, stop in Memphis, and I can't remember whether we changed planes or what we did, but anyway, from Memphis to Dallas, the first leg of the trip was fine, but then from Memphis to Dallas, somewhere midway through the trip, the plane went haywire. And just, it felt like it was doing this. Just, and it kept doing it. So the guy sitting next to me, to my left, he's dead sleep. And he woke up 
And he woke up, he, you know, he kind of shook and woke up and he looked at me and said, wow, that woke me up, even me. And I don't never wake up in these kind of situations. And I turned around and looked behind me and there was a woman with her head in her hands like this. And people were shook up by the flight. It was really bad. Needless to say, I was shook up. Badly. So when we finally landed in Dallas, I was never so glad, so glad to see the ground in my life. Ooh, man, I was, I mean, I was stunned. I was, I was looking back on it, honestly, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I was in something of a state of shock after what we'd gone through. When I got to the hotel room, I called Linda and I said, I'm not getting back on the plane to come back home. I said, I'm renting a car and I'm driving back home. And she asked me what happened and I told her. And what was worse, the airline had terrible customer service. So there wasn't anybody for me to talk to. After the flight was over, I was frustrated and angry about that. But it was a really bad flight. And I remember another fellow passenger telling me after the flight, he was saying, you know what, I've only been through one <laughs> situation like that. But I was never so glad to see the ground and to get back to a place of safety. You know, I can imagine the disciples, you know, really, surely they felt safe with Jesus getting in the boat, quieting everything down. But they are stunned by Jesus. They're stunned by Jesus. They were already stunned by what they had witnessed with him feeding the 5,000. They're stunned again watching him walk on the water and then climb into the boat and quell the elements as he had done before. But they still did not believe their eyes. They did not believe what they had seen. So they must have been in something of a state of mind, glad to be back docking on dry ground. And docking in a place that they had not known they were going to wind up. But even though it was a place that they had not known they were going to wind up in, they wound up there with Jesus who led them there on purpose. None of this is by accident. It is all by design. You know it's not by accident because Jesus has command of the natural world. He has command of the elements. And if he had wanted them to go all the way through the Bethsaida, then they would have done so, but he chose not to because that wasn't a part of his plan, although in their minds, that was the plan. Because that's the last thing they had been told, was to set sail toward Bethsaida and to do so without him. Here they are now at Gennesaret. Not having expected what they had experienced on the water. Stunned by it all, back on dry land. Hmm. As I said, the Lord knew what he was doing with them. This is why trust in the Lord is so important, even when we have no idea what's going on. As followers of Christ, we can always be assured that he knows 
how to get us to the other side of a difficult journey. Even when we don't know what will happen or how, how we will get to the other side of a difficult journey. He knows how to get us to the destination where we're supposed to be. And it is true the destination is not always where we originally thought. Have you ever experienced a journey wherein you did not know if you would ever get through it safely and live to tell about it? Moreover, what did you learn about God while you were on that difficult journey? You see, that's the question. God is in the journey, not only in the destination. God is in the journey. Now, you know something, church? We can identify with this even as a church congregation, a particular congregation of Christian believers, the, the cornerstone church. God has been with us in the journey. I can remember times when my mind was fix, fixated and focused on the destination. But I have learned over time as I have grown in the Lord that God is in the journey, not just the destination. Because in my mind, if I'd have had my way with the destination, well, you know, a whole lot of things would have happened by now and been very different, but that's not the point. And you need to realize in your life this same truth. Jesus is Lord of the journey and Lord of the destination. And you and I don't decide on the destination, even though we are very accustomed to doing what we want to do, especially in today's world, with all of the tools available to us to do what we want to do. We have to consciously correct ourselves on the journey and remind ourselves that the journey is about Jesus, just as the destination is about him and not about me, not about myself. Not about I, not about us, not about we, but all about him, you see. They had to learn this on the journey. They saw him do things that could only be explained by divine authority. Only God could do such things. And Jesus was teaching them about himself while they were on the journey. By the way, on that journey on the lake, before they dock at Gennesaret, they're out there by themselves, away from all the crowds where they had been, and away from the crowds that they're about to encounter yet again here in this story. Out there in the journey, on the journey, in the sea, 
with the Lord Jesus. Think about it. And think about the times in our lives when the Lord most effectively teaches us about him. Well, it's in times when a whole lot of other people are not in the way, distracting and pulling at us. Hmm. What did you learn about Jesus on your difficult journey? What have you learned about Jesus on your difficult journeys so far? Well, did you spend, as I know I have done in my, on, in my life, in my journey, at times in the past, spend so much time worrying about whether you would ever get to the destination or not, that you failed to learn the lessons right in front of you. You see, when you get to the place where you say, you know what, I'm not worried about the destination. God's in control of that. What I am concerned to do is learn everything the Lord is trying to teach me on the journey right now. Uh, tomorrow and the destination will take care of itself. God's got that. What is the Lord trying to teach me right now? During this period, during this time, at this place in your journey. What happened next? Well, verse 54 says, as soon as they got out of the boat, People recognized Jesus. Now, at this point in the story, the disciples actually recede into the background because the focus is all on Jesus. By the way, that too was another lesson for them to learn in the middle of the difficult and toilsome journey that they had just completed on the Sea of Galilee. That the focus ought to be all about Jesus, not about them. The public immediately recognized Jesus. The word immediately, by the way, is omitted from the NIV translation. For those of you who have the NIV, the word immediately is omitted from the NIV translation, but it vividly portrays the personal and powerful magnetism of Jesus. Immediately they recognized him. Let us remember now, brothers and sisters, that in those days they did not have camera pictures or digital images like the technology we have today. If they had never seen Jesus before, then how would they recognize him? They would have only heard verbal descriptions of him from others. Think about it. They didn't, they didn't have the New York Times, the Washington Post, print editions and digital editions where they could see what he looked like. No such things and no such technology existed. Yet, the moment Jesus got off of that boat, everybody immediately recognized him. They knew who he was, the Bible says. Hmm. 
The public instantly knew it was Jesus when he and the disciples disembarked from the boat. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, when people see us, how easily do they recognize Jesus with us? All of them disembarked from the boat. The disciples, along with Jesus. Everybody recognized Jesus. So everybody could see that Jesus was with them or they were with Jesus, you see. So I wonder, when people see us, how easily do they recognize Jesus with us? When people see us, is their attention drawn to Jesus or to us? You know, I'm reminded of the words of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, when he confessed, he must increase but I must decrease. Speaking of Jesus. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. The theme of the Gospel of Mark is, is that Jesus Christ is God the Son. Jesus alone deserves the center of attention as we heard sung in the beautiful worship song earlier that David led us in. Not the disciples, nor anyone else. Jesus should be the center of everybody's attention. And we should make sure, with all of our blessing and ability, to do everything that we can to help people see Jesus, not us. See, that's, that's the challenge for us today, particularly in such a narcissistic age uh, as we live in today. Because for people, people want the focus on them. All you got to do is look at social media to figure that out. <laughs> All you got to do is look at social media to figure that out. People want the attention focused on them. But the Lord has saved us so that we do everything we can to focus the attention on the Lord not on ourselves. And, and listen, this can be a temptation for all of us, from everyone in the pew all the way up to the pulpit. And as a matter of fact, too many of us in the pulpit uh, are, are, you know, consumed with self, self, self-image and all other versions of self. And again, as I said, we live in a social media age where Look, social media is all about the self. Now, I mean, the term social media sounds like, you know, it's about the community and about, but it's, 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 in this age, it's all about the self. The almighty self. And the attention focused on me, myself and I, attention focused on me and my troubles, my pains, my hurts, whatever they may be, my opinions, my gripes and grievances 
on and on and on. You know, recently I have to just confess, brothers and sisters, I'm, I have very seldom posted on Twitter. I think the last time I posted something on Twitter was about 2015. <laughs> but I kept it so that I could, you know, just see what's going on. A few days, a week or two ago, I just got rid of it and deactivated the whole thing. I said, I'm just sick of this. You know what? I haven't missed it one minute. Do you know why? Because sometimes everybody's opinions can simply be poisoning to the soul. Every, listen, you don't need to say everything that crosses your mind. Do you not understand or realize that the reason God did not give us the ability to read one another's minds is because there are some thoughts that do not need to be known? That they are known only to God? And they ought to stay that way? You know what I mean? This is a generation that seems to have no scruples and no boundaries when it comes to that. And not just young people. I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, criticizing the young people. This is everybody because us old folks are just as bad. Sometimes you ought to keep your opinions to yourself. And if you haven't talked to God about it, Christian, why don't you talk to the Lord about it first before you open your mouth or before you start with the Twitter finger? More damage has been done by these by people on these mediums. I'm not saying the mediums themselves are good or bad. It's people on them. Because there's so much selfishness and narcissism. I got to tell the whole, I want the whole world to know everything that's wrong with me on the inside. As if the world can actually do anything to fix you. The world can't do anything to fix you. The world can't do anything to heal what's broken on the inside of you. You can tell everybody everything all you want. There isn't anything they can do to fix you. I'll tell you that right now. Oh, sure, they'll tell you they can, and they'll try genuinely in some cases and sincerely. But the truth of the matter is, is no one can do anything to fix you on the inside except Jesus, except God, the one who created you. You may get some sort of personal catharsis by telling everybody what's going on within your soul, but you may be in the process of poisoning everybody else's ears in doing so. I remember an old preacher saying in a sermon one time, and I never forgot it. It impacted me so powerfully. He said this, long before the technological advancements of social media, 40 years ago, he said, never let your ears become a garbage can. I never forgot that. That's wisdom for the ages right there. And I just got tired of my, you know, I'm just tired of that. I don't, I don't that is a waste of my time. I've missed it. If, I, if something happens and I don't know about it, well, okay, it'll be all right. I'll be all right. <laughs> I'll find out soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but let me, let me, let me get back here. Jesus alone deserves the center of attention, not the disciples nor anyone else. Jesus, just give me Jesus. For he alone is savior. 
How did the people react when they recognized Jesus? Well, verses 55 and 56 tell us they ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. Wow. So the minute, that the Bible says they immediately recognized Jesus. And then they start running. What's interesting is this. They, you would expect they recognize Jesus, they start running toward him. No, here they recognize Jesus and they start running everywhere else. What are they doing? Going to find and to get others whom they know or whom they know about to get them to Jesus. Or they hear that, or they see that Jesus is here, and this, this, I'll be right back. <laughs> I'll be right back. I got about four or five people. I know I got to go get my hands on. Somebody is sick in my home and my family. Somebody is suffering somewhere that I know. I got to go get him while he's here. That's the mindset. <laughs> oh, how I wish that was our mindset. The people hurried away to find all who were sick because they also recognized the compassion of Jesus and his power to heal. The scripture says they ran throughout the whole region. These are not short distances. <laughs> we should notice the urgency and the lengths people went to in order to get those who were sick to Jesus. Look at the lengths they're going to. What's so interesting, again, they don't run to him uh, in, the, in, in the fashion of a spectator sport, if, they, if you will. No, no, no. They're running to find everybody they know. People who have been sick and not able to get well, people who have suffered and suffered and suffered to no end, people who have struggled, They ran. They wasted no time trying to get people to Jesus. While he was in their region, they knew they needed to get to him. That they needed to get others to him. While there was time, they knew he would not always be there. And they didn't know how long he would be there. They just knew he was there. And they would not waste a moment in trying to get others whom they loved, whom they cared about, people for whom they hurt and they ached, people whose conditions and whose sufferings were not being resolved in any other way or could not be resolved in any other way. They ran to go get them to Jesus. Not only did the public react urgently, but they went everywhere in the area to get the sick and bring them to Jesus for healing. Why? Because they believed he would show compassion to their friends, 
family, neighbors, and others in need of God's grace. By the way, when does getting others to Jesus become an urgent matter for us? Hmm. When? You know, it reminds me of that old beautiful hymn. Um, While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. They would not miss this opportunity because this might be the only opportunity they and their loved ones, their friends, their, their fellow sufferers would ever have. This, 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 this might be the only time they ever would come this close to God, to God's presence among them. They did not want to miss the opportunity to receive the compassion that only Jesus could give. I can only imagine the frenzy of thousands of people clamoring for Jesus' attention or simply a touch from the Lord. They, the scripture says, carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. Remember, they don't have social media. This is word of mouth. You know, the telephone, <laughs> Alexander Graham Bell would be centuries and centuries away. <laughs> You know, the Greek word for mats, carrying the sick on mats, the Greek word for mats refers to the mattresses or pallets used by poor people. This shows Jesus' compassion for those who were poor and needy. You know, the poor ain't coming if they don't think you care about them. Here they knew. They knew Jesus cared. And they knew, they believed he could do something about it, about their condition, about their situation. This shows Jesus' compassion for those who were poor and needy. Jesus never displayed anything but compassion for the poor and needy. We must learn from his example because Proverbs chapter 17 verse 5 says this, whoever despises the poor shows contempt for their maker. Jesus never denied the poor. Jesus never slandered the poor. Jesus never ignored the poor who came to him. Jesus went among the poor. He went to the places where they lived. He had compassion for the poor. One of the worst traits of a wealthy society is contempt for those who are poor simply because they're poor. 
One of the worst traits of a wealthy society is contempt for the poor. Any society that mistreats the poor, wherever they come from, any society that mistreats the poor is itself an impoverished society. I was reading in the news a day or two ago about a woman who was on a luxury cruise recently and um, <clears throat> in the middle of the cruise, the luxury cruise, the ship encountered a bunch of migrants on some piece of a boat or floating object out in the sea. And so the ship's captain, um, of course, ordered that the crew jump into rescue mode to rescue those migrants on some sort of a rickety life raft of a boat or something out in the ocean. And so they rescue them. And this woman with her, um, you know, with her, her smartphone took video of it and talked about it. And there were others on the boat who were cheering, you know, for the, uh, the crew and the people to rescue them and to get them on the boat. And, and she said she was so afraid, uh, the lady was saying she was so afraid because at one point it looked like they might all get sucked under that boat, under that ship, while they were trying to rescue them somehow. I've never seen this, but I'm trying to describe what she described in the story. And she was just glad but of course it forced her and others to ponder the dichotomy there. On the one hand, here are people on a luxury cruise uh, ship, and on the other hand, here are people on a rickety piece of a boat, straining to survive, struggling to survive, hoping they make it. Nobody on that ship was worried about getting to the destination you know, where they were gonna go, what they were going to be doing, but these other people did not know they would ever get out of the sea alive. And the woman said, she thought to herself, how many more people are there like these? All across the oceans, whom we never know anything about because they're lost at sea. Hmm. Others on social media, there were lots of people on social media who were supportive. There were others on social media who were the opposite. And there were some people on the luxury ship who did not appreciate rescuing lives in the middle of the sea. How could you be so selfish, narcissistic, and nothing short of evil in your soul as to not care about human migrants stuck at sea, unlikely to get where they're going 
And in many, many, many cases, if they get where they were trying to go, they get so severely mistreated. How could you not have compassion for these people? See, this is what I mean. A wealthy society that has contempt for the poor is an impoverished society, no matter how much wealth it has. This is our, listen, this is the story of the United States of America in 2023. Everything you see happening to us, within us, and among us is because of the moral bankruptcy of everybody from, listen, listen to me, folk in the church to folk in the world, from the church to the streets, from the pulpit to the street corner. There's none righteous, no, not one. No wonder the government and the democracy are teetering. You mistreat the poor, you slander the poor, and by the poor, listen, by poor and needy, we're not just talking about, and the Bible is just talking about those who don't have a lot of money. But those who have need, whatever it may be, not just a need for money, not just a need for economic justice, but a need for justice. You see, the problem with America is that she's been bankrupt since she started. Oh, but that's un-American. You can't say that. <laughs> oh, yes, I can. And any other prophet who knows the truth and who will preach the truth will remind us. We've been dealing with a moral bankruptcy around since the very beginning in this society. Don't get it twisted. As long as there are poor and impoverished people who are mistreated in this country, we don't have a reason to be beating our chest as if we're better than everybody else. Not when all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. A little humility is in order for a change. Jesus cared about people up and down the socioeconomic strata, up and down, it doesn't matter. They could be the lowest of the low or the highest of the high. Jesus saw them all the same. Why? Because he was with the Father in the beginning when mankind was created. And Jesus knows what everybody is made of. <laughs> Jesus knows the material we're made of because he made it. God the Son. So what is he doing? He has come into a world that has been badly marred by human sin and misery. Yes, the compassion of the heart of God reaches toward those who are suffering and hurting. And any human being who thinks otherwise 
and who believes otherwise is simply lost. Don't think because you have money now that you will always have money. And even if you do have money, if you ain't got nothing else, you're still poor. There are people with money who ain't got their minds. What good does that do you? There are people with money, but you ain't got no health. You're going to die. What good is it? How's your money going to save you? How's your wealth? What does your wealth do when it comes to? These men who were on this, this, in this boat on the sea, they had money. They owned the boat they were in. They didn't even know that they would get to the shore if Jesus hadn't came to rescue them. You see, this is the problem with us. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. He went to places where the poor lived. He had compassion for the poor. Wherever Jesus went in the region of Gennesaret, they placed the sick near him so that he might have an opportunity, so that they might have an opportunity to be healed by the Lord. This also shows the compassion of the many people who went to great lengths to bring the sick to Jesus. They spared no effort. In every village, every town, every city, every marketplace, they came bringing souls whose bodies had been assaulted by sickness, disease, and poverty. Not only did they bring countless suffering people to Jesus, but the scripture also says they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. Think about that for a moment with me, would you? They're begging Jesus. They're begging Jesus recalls other times when people in great need begged Jesus. Uh, for example, like the man with leprosy in Mark chapter 1 verse 40. Oh Lord, if, you, if you're willing, you can make me clean. They were begging Jesus to touch him. They believed that even if he was not able to get to them individually because of the crowds and masses of people, they could still be healed by touching him. This shows their great need, their great faith, and his great power to heal. Their need is so great that they are desperate simply to touch Jesus. If nothing else, just to touch him would bring healing to them. They knew it. They believed it. This reminds us of the woman who suffered from bleeding for 12 long years in Mark chapter 5 verse 28, who said to herself, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I will be made whole. Hmm. 
Have you ever been in this place? For Jesus? How badly do you want him? How much do you want him? How much, what would you do? To what lengths are you willing to go? You know, nowadays we're not willing to go to many lengths. Remember, for far too often we bow to the God of convenience, which is a subsidiary God of the God of materialism. <laughs> you know, materialism brings convenience. And if it's not convenient for us, well, don't expect to see me there. When we forget and fail to realize that there was nothing convenient about the cross, nothing convenient about Jesus coming into the world, nothing convenient about Jesus trudging up the hill called Golgotha, Since when does the cross have anything to do with convenience? Perhaps these masses of people heard about her story, the woman in Mark 5, 28, and sought the same cure from Jesus for their own sick loved ones. How bad must things get in our lives before we humble ourselves enough to beg Jesus? When's the last time you begged Jesus? How deep do difficulties need to get for us to realize how much we need the Lord to the point of begging him? While some might not beg people, we must never be too proud to beg the Lord. The people needed the Lord's help and they willingly begged him. Jesus is worthy to be begged by every one of us. If you're not a beggar, you're not serious about the Lord. I'm sorry to have to tell you. If you're not a beggar, if you're not willing to beg the Lord, you're not serious. You got too much trust in yourself. Still. If we realize how much we need him, we will beg for his help, his salvation, his deliverance, his healing. Sometimes, you know, God has to let some severe weather blow into our lives to humble us enough to beg him. You know, and their begging him did not go unanswered. Their begging him wasn't empty. They received from the Lord what they begged for. If they could simply touch the tassels on the edge of his garment, they knew his divine power would heal them. And finally here, the scripture says, and all who touched it, who touched the edge of his garment even, 
All who touched it were healed. They were literally and legitimately cured of every sickness. This affirmation of Jesus healing emphasizes the continuing and enduring ability of his healing power. He was continually healing all who touched him. By the way, he didn't say, don't touch me. <laughs> you know, I'm reminded of resurrection morning when Mary sees him and when she realizes that it's Jesus, what does she do? She does more than touch him. She grabs him and Jesus said, don't hold on to me now. <laughs> I got to go back to my father. He allowed them to touch him. He allowed them. They're begging to touch Jesus. They're begging for Jesus to touch them. And guess what? Jesus is allowing them to touch him. He's there for them to touch him. He led the disciples on the circuitous route back west into Gennesaret, docked there for the purpose of their being able to see him and to touch him and for him to bless them and to heal as many as would be healed while he was passing by. He was continually healing everybody who touched him. To this very day, Jesus' power to heal is just as effective. The power to heal every manner of illness and disease is indicative of the divine authority of the Messiah. It was proof before their very eyes that he is the Messiah. Sometimes we like, we will use the word was, you know, Jesus was God, Jesus was the Messiah. Well, yes, that is true, but that's not enough. He is, because he's risen from the dead, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. That includes was, but also includes now. He is the Son of God and the Messiah and Savior of the world. And if Jesus is able to heal sick bodies in this way, he is also able to save sick souls. So are you sick on the inside? If your body's not sick, is your mind sick? Is your heart sick? Is your soul sick? Are you sick on the inside? Jesus is able not only to heal a sick body, but Jesus is able to heal a sick soul, a sick mind, a sick spirit. Hebrews 7.25 says this, and I'll leave it with us at this point. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. He is able to save completely, totally, so thoroughly that the sickness is forever done away with. The sickness of sin, forever done away with. The sickness of guilt, forever done away with. The sickness of the pain of the past and the guilt and the sin that has happened, forever done away with, taken away by him who is able to totally and completely save anyone who comes to God through him. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, thank you for the blessing and the privilege of receiving your word, hearing your word. May we receive it and continue to receive your word, the message you have given us today in our souls. Do not let us forget it. Do not let us disregard it. Oh God, do not let the world steal it. May your word fall on fertile and faithful ground within our hearts, our minds, our souls. And may your word produce fruit within us and from within us. Fruit that lasts. Fruit that is eternal. Fruit that you deem to be good fruit. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.